0: A most original and creative talent in our business. Would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles.
1: Buck Benny, the two fisted, quick triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and
2: never misses. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. We are talking Orson Welles. We are here with my friend Vincent, my friend Kathy, and they are my historian specialists, and uh, Vincent, especially with, with Orson Welles. Um, hey, Vincent, so I know you've got this book thing you're working on. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what's going to be like in the book? And two, like, when it's roughly going to come out, because I want to reserve my copy, but go ahead.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So the book is a study of um, Orson Welles's unfinished production uh, of uh, Heart of Darkness, which he attempted to make. It was essentially, you know, we all know Citizen Kane, likely, but this is the film that he really wanted to make, which is an adaptation of Joseph Conrad's novella, right when he first came to Hollywood. Um, The book essentially... um, Investigates the connection between Wells's uh, anti-fascist politics and the racial representation of indigenous people. Um, The tagline version is that essentially, uh, you know, it's even though the commentaries, which you're about to hear, are extremely uh, anti-racist and progressive, one of Wells's ideas was essentially to uh, to sort of dig on Nazi culture and Nazi ideology was to compare it to those of indigenous people. So essentially saying like, like indigenous people are primitive, so are Nazis. They're not this uh, advanced sort of people that they think they are. Um, now that's a snapshot of Wells's some of Wells's political ideas of 1939. They don't uh, really at all uh, continue into the period of the commentaries, which we see. In fact, um, we see that almost completely disappear. So even though Wells has this very strange fascination with this idea um, in the late 30s, his sort of wartime and post wartime anti-fascism is very different. And um, again, it's not sort of muddled in his strange ideas about indigenous people. Although you do see it a couple of times in the commentaries where he talks about sort of like the beginning of times about Stone Age people and things like that. But anyway, it doesn't quite carry through. but anyway, go ahead, Kathy. Yeah, that's oh, the idea no, no. behind
3: it the book. It. We'll keep it off. I just uh, reviewed the most interesting manuscript from the German point of view about Germans loving the connection with indigenous, praising mm-hmm. their connection yes. to Indians and indigenous tribes that they yep. thought that the two were similar. And I can send you the manuscript. Uh, That'd be great, uh,
1: yeah.
3: Uh, uh, my friend, Nancy Reagan. It's about that the Germans would establish th- uh, Indian theme parks and yep. go dress up and play Indian because they saw positive connection. So it's like eh, weird. That's so, great.
1: No, I, I did know. I did know that a little bit, but I, um, yeah. you know, that they were fascinated with the idea of the West and of uh, Native Americans in particular. So it's a strange, again, I, I, you know, it, the book is going to be very clear that, you know, uh, this is a snapshot of Wells's political thinking rather than a long-term sort of yeah. evaluation of it. But um, you know, it it leads me into you know looking at his political career, uh, you know, post 1939, which is the part uh, that we're really examining here in the commentary.
2: Yeah, awesome, awesome. Oh, and and then I didn't hear uh, the time frame that it was probably going to be coming out. Do you, do you have any idea? Oh that? yeah,
1: sorry. Yeah, so the book will come out probably midway through next year. Okay. Yep. So 20, 2022.
2: Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. All right. Well, and uh, and hopefully. Some of the things we're talking about and things that we go through with the ocean commentaries will um cause you to look deeper, look into different avenues than maybe you thought about, which would be great too. They absolutely have already, yeah. Oh, perfect, perfect. Well, uh, today's episode, uh, one of my favorites. Um, I've always been a, a big fan of FDR, and um, and for various reasons, I just feel like um, we, we on my uh, a forum I go to, and we talk about um, uh, albums and things. They'll talk about uh, the underappreciated albums, like uh, of, the, of the Beatles or of Paul McCartney or whatever. And, and they'll say that this work is a great work and, and, and it doesn't get the appreciation that it should or the acknowledgement that it should. And then, in, in some ways, I feel that's true of FDR. Uh, FDR between getting us out of the depression and dealing with World War II. Just an amazing uh, timeframe that he was president of our country. And and yet we don't talk about him as much as we do certain other presidents. And I think part of it is he's pre-television, he's uh, pre uh, where we don't have all of his uh, uh, all this video representation of him that we do of, of some of the later presidents so we can look back and they can easily show on a Sunday morning show or whatever. This is something where you can only listen to audio pieces and things or the occasional filmed piece that they have. Um, but it's just great that Orson, this is a year after his passing, after, after FDR, um, we lost FDR. And it's just sort of Orson's sort of tribute to him in this episode and it's so lovingly done, and so well pre- represented. And talking about how people that that both uh, believed and respected in the, in the work of FDR, and even the people that that didn't, still had this deep ache that happened when they when we lost him, and the uh, and just how everybody processes it. I, I just think it's a, a fantastic piece, completely different than anything else. Uh, Orson has done, and how he continues to find new ways to do things, and uh, is just phenomenal. Um, I'll go to Kathy. Kathy, what, what, what did you think about this? And, and I,
3: as I said, I thought it was lovely, touching again something very much of 1946 that would change rapidly um, thereafter. Because, as I said, there is a um, um, Republicans. Conservatives who've been out of power since 1932 have had 12 years to stew about this. As I say, you can see the connection between conservatives who had all the time to stew during the Obama administration, and you know what, you know. So, so there's in 1946, it's sort of gonna the, gonna burst through. But what I love about this piece, it's sort of lyricism. It actually reminds me of something like the Federal Theater Project might have written during the Depression, the voices of the common people, almost talking about waiting for Godot, but waiting for Roosevelt. And, you know, Orson got his start in federal theater projects using that money that um, uh, Roosevelt and his New Deal created to keep artists from starving. Um, And he said, "I, I... Again, I think you could put on this uh, as a play uh, uh, with these uh, that he has got it set in a Chicago. I don't think uh, somebody wrote him this letter at all. I think this one he created himself because it's so. Beautiful. Couldn't agree more. But yep. to be talking, be, have it set in a Chicago factory during like break time or going the one letter writer, going around to worker, worker, worker. And they're all different immigrants. So they're talking about the experiences overseas, the hope of coming to the US. One of the things I thought was kind of interesting was that the whole depression era was downplayed to play up um, the war times. And there's absolutely nothing you know wrong with that. That's what happens when you're president for 12 years through a long depression and wartime. Um, But um, uh, the way they, they talk about him as a father, as a mentoring sort of father figure about one person that that is interviewed says, oh, I'm worried about how sick he looked at Yalta. You know, did he, you know, speculating, did he look like he was about to die or did he always look that way? Um, uh, So all the different things Roosevelt was to them and I love the idea about please don't make the monuments met yet unless until we can finally fix the issues he was fighting for. And um and then just the honor of, of them uh, the one person saying he was a president. And that really struck home to me because it's been a while since I felt you know I mean as I say yeah. we won't get yeah. overly political about it yeah. but yeah. Uh, the the best of hopes of having a, a leader and missing that leader and um, a sort of honoring everything that that leader did it, it'd make a great play so uh,
2: I agree. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't take much fleshing out a little bit uh, here and there, and it could really make a great uh, presentation, great play. But it's a great audio piece for us to listen to, and a great piece of history. And I'm so glad, glad, glad we have this. Uh, the other piece I thought I'd mention was was that you you'd said uh, how one of the folks had mentioned how he looked and whether he looked like he was they were going to lose him or maybe he'd always looked this way. I thought that was really interesting. That piece. But also it ties into an earlier um, commentary we had in which Orson had said that he'd been at the inauguration and talked about how FDR looked at the inauguration and that it didn't look like he was very healthy and he was really concerned how long we would have him after that and we didn't have him too much longer
3: um he was only in his early 60s it's not like he was 78 like joe biden i mean you know though right. uh though all this time in office, he really started to age in the 40s yeah. you could see yeah. it in his sort of face and demeanor i'd like to I, I quit yammering and, and hear what vincent has to say
1: i i mean the first thing that i i totally agree with you I don't know about you, but when I had time cards, they were never this big. So I don't know how somebody would (laughs) write this in the back of a time card to me. I mean, there's tons of evidence that this was, you know, if not fully written by Wells, certainly built up. I mean, one thing is that the the metaphors within the story, not only just the characters, I mean, are clear. He's comparing, you know, sort of. um, Nazi use of technology and machines to those of the workers, and saying you know sort of how the modern era exacerbated this problem, and it's such a actually a deep text that it seems impossible unless this is somebody's like they spent forever on this letter and you know months and months and months. But I think the the other thing that's underlying this letter that we shouldn't forget is that. You know, not only were FDR and Wells sort of simpatico in their, uh, you know, political ideology for the most part. I mean, Wells was certainly a support of New Deal style politics, um, you know, more money for workers, especially. But they were, um, you know, friends and co-workers, colleagues together. Wells was a a script, uh, yeah, a speechwriter for Roosevelt um, in his last campaign in 1944, In fact, Wells left his pregnant wife, you know, uh, Debonair Rita Hayworth, to go work with uh, FDR on this. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, FDR gave Wells this beautiful ivory cane that we actually have uh, still at the University of Michigan. They wrote letters to each other. For example, FDR, I know, wrote some to Wells when he was, uh, Wells was sick and said, we need you, you know, back on the team, you know, get better soon. And so this is a this is actually a bond here. It's not just about politics. Um, you know, I, I Wells was definitely a huge believer in FDR as an individual, as a person and as a as a president. You can clearly see that here. Um, yeah, I think that's to me, it was it was personal. And that clearly I mean, he says at the end, it's something like uh, this was insufficient, but it was heartfelt. And I thought, OK, you know, clearly this is like a, a eulogy almost.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and uh,
3: sure, the, loved it. the the wonderful phrases that I caught from, uh, like that he was our faith in ourselves, and then the 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 last allusion to uh, children uh, cutting out paper tulips. And putting in the school windows, which I remember right. doing in first grade, and sort of, you know, that's that that thought of spring and resurrection. Oh no! So now we've got religious metaphors, you know, uh, right. FDR rising from the dead to go sit yeah. upon the right hand of whatever. But um, but that's um, the, when he asks, "Will the children remember?" And um, that connects Daryl to your question about who remembers FDR. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said uh, reputations of presidents are always changing, rising and falling and rising and falling. If, uh, uh, Kennedy's, for example, has been very volatile over the years. Um, I wonder if, just as you say, the fact that he, we deliberately didn't have much visual from him, because uh, his his PR handlers didn't want the world to see him in a wheelchair, right? So um, that made him a natural for the radio, a way to connect with people in their <laughs> homes. But as that greatest ge- greatest ge- you know, as that generation has died, we no longer have that connection, and so it's going to take um, new histories and a sort of rediscovery. In the same way, we've been rediscovering Lincoln, and then after a yeah. while, we've been rediscovering Eisenhower maybe um uh, uh uh what was it um oh who is the woman who uh, writes the book and it was uh is it band of rivals mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. did she write that about roosevelt or about lincoln i guess she wrote it about lincoln's white house but um it'll be to the charismatic historians who bring us a new roosevelt mm-hmm. core exactly. post-covid times
2: so, oh you're, yeah, uh, you're, one, you're one... talking Doris kearns Durace goodwin good one, right? good one. thank yeah. you oh yeah 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 yes he's one great.
1: thing that i I think that is, is uh, interesting talking about FDR's reputation now. I mean, I'm not sure that people of my generation know much about FDR, maybe a little bit about the New Deal, but I would say for some reason, I mean, this is completely anecdotal, but I know that even um, older conservatives in my life, they actually think of Roosevelt as a really great president. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, if you really knew about Roosevelt's politics, I'm not hundred percent sure you would agree with that, but I'm, I, you know, I, that's more of a question, a provocative question than it is anything. But I wonder, again, like you said, sometimes dual reputations, uh, you know, reputations can happen at the same time. That seems to have happened with Roosevelt. I don't understand right. it, but. Um,
3: it's because he's got the two things he's got the, what conservatives would say was outrageously overspending of the new deal, but that same over overrage- Oh, that same overspending during World War II that helped corporations, um, you know, um, made America the strongest country at the end of the war. So uh, while they hate, while the conservatives hated the social spending, they loved the connection with industry to be able to to produce all the goods that helped us actually win the war. The fact that we out tanked, out planned, out gunned. Um, so sorry, that's.
1: This, no, that makes sense. That makes
3: sense. That, yep. that, that's just basic history
2: teacher's usual. Well, I think story. as well, he, uh, what makes him stand out, I guess I'll take the extreme. It seems like, and I could be wrong, it seems like the extremes here are Trump and Roosevelt in that Trump, no matter what you say about Trump, he sells. He can sell himself. He sells the things he's doing. He is a seller of what I did is great and you shall see what I did. Here's what I did. Take a look at this. Whereas FDR seems like the absolute opposite of (laughs) undercutting himself and underselling himself and not doing that. Uh, His famous thing about his, um, uh, about statues, memorials for him or whatever, saying that, that he didn't think any uh, memorial to him should be bigger than his desk. And, For years, they kind of, every time someone would want to do some sort of uh, memorial or statue or whatever, folks would quote that line and it would get in the way and they'd say, okay, well, then we won't do this. So finally, they did do an FDR memorial. I've I've been to D.C. and saw it with my kids and everything. It's wonderful. Um, It does have a smaller feel to it, and I think that is kind of to honor him. I mean, he does have, it's it's more about these are the things he accomplished during his time with him being a small piece of it at the end. It, I, and I think it's not much bigger than his desk is, is his piece of that memorial thing, but but it uh, it's a delightful memorial to go through and, and very educational versus just seeing a statue of him. Uh, and I think that, that, but I do think his kind of underplaying himself um probably also leads to a little bit of this over time us not celebrating him as much as we might have otherwise. Yeah.
1: Yeah. One one thing on the the political note that I think we should mention is that uh Truman is never mentioned here. Wells rarely mentions Truman and I think we have right. to read between the lines here on Wells's sort of uh progressive politics. He does mention in this one Congress hasn't acted on any of FDR sort of uh things he left at the table, but Truman is not mentioned. Wells was a sort of uh, even though he accepted when Roosevelt switched out uh, Truman or uh, Henry Wallace for Truman, which uh, Henry Wallace was much more accepted by progressives like Wells. uh, He seemed okay with it, but Wells quickly became sort of uh, disheartened with Truman. Yes. It, It seems to me in some ways that he, is being nice that he doesn't mention Truman and just calls out Congress. But I think that's certainly there in the subtext of this, which is like, he might as well not be there at all.
2: Well, and Vincent, just so you know, uh, he's nice and not mentioning this time, but if you go back uh, (laughs) in our our earlier commentaries, he's mentioned Truman a couple different times. And the time we've mentioned him, it is exactly like you're saying where he says, uh, it'll be essentially saying, We The jury is still out on Truman yet, but so far he's making some choices and some decisions and listening to some people that I don't think bode well for for Truman doing well is sort of Mm -hmm. the underlying piece that you get. And Kathy's nodding. Do you agree with that, Kathy, so far? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's only mentioned in probably, I don't know. In in all these ones we've very done, probably briefly. two or three times. Very, I mean,
3: yeah. very briefly, he's talked more about Jimmy Burns than he. Sure, uh, that's true. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, in Russia, actually. Yes, yeah. definitely. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And and so yeah, and, and we'll see. Well, I, it'll be interesting how he progresses and talk about Truman. I'm sure Truman oh, will come back oh, up.
3: Yeah. Soon, but soon. this was certainly so heartfelt. And as I said, I look forward to getting a few more comments back from my friend, who's a specialist in the Roosevelt presidency and runs a Roosevelt Institute I'll be curious to see uh, uh, what she uh, she immediately leaped on it when I sent it to her and she's in Taiwan at the moment so that was uh, wow. early in the morning on a Saturday that she she wanted to see uh, oh, oh, what Orison had to say and and was just thrilled by it so uh, excellent
2: well I think that we'll leave that there and let folks go ahead and enjoy this episode truly great great episode um i do agree with you folks about the fact that this there's no way this is written on the back of a time card or whatever anyway um but but it, it, if it if it truly is just coming from orson which it sort sure sounds to me like it is i wish he had made it sound like it wasn't because then it calls into question all the previous letters he's had from folks and uh, and to me, it's of a of a piece more similar to when he had the episode a couple of weeks ago, where um, he's talking to the little girl and 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 taking her through, and it's just a framework that he uses. And this framework he's using to honor FDR is through what he feels like would be the voice of all these different people and their viewpoints. Yeah. Um, right. yeah. So. Anyway, I enjoyed it, and and I'm glad you guys did too, and I think our listeners will as well. So uh, we will see you folks next time for more Orson Welles commentaries. These are wonderful.
0: This is Orson Welles speaking. I want to thank you again for your letters. The manufacturers of a fine radio make it possible for me to send you a five-tube table model for any letter used on this program. And this week's radio goes to Francis Martin of Chicago, who wrote me as follows. Dear Mr. Wells, the people in the tool works I worked in during the war had their say about FDR, the day he died. But nobody outside the factory heard. This was written by me from notes I took down on the backs of time cards during the shift. It's almost exactly as it happened. So this letter to you is on their behalf. From April to April. The riches of the people cannot be recorded on a time card, but they began to be counted nonetheless as the work siren blew to start the second shift, 4.30 p.m., daylight saving central wartime. Whitey ran up the aisle from the stockroom and spilled his news. I heard machines shutting off one after another. No rush order had ever circulated in the shop so quickly. No layoff rumor had ever changed the looks on so many faces. Hey, Stash, this screwball says that FDR... Then his face, too, would change. It'd be the next man's turn. Workers with jobs already set up to cut restarted their machines. The accustomed shock of soft steel met by tool steel helped to counter the shock men had inside them. Other workers slid bolts into slots, not with a slap, but slowly, and tightened down nuts, not with a slash of the wrench, but studiously, as if for the first time. My milling machine throbbed each thrust to the cutter into the work, 84 thrusts and throbs a minute. Deep in its total metal, the big machine shook with an undertone I had not listened to before, like a dirge. Casimir of the middle row cranked his work a turn into the cutter and stopped. I like that man, Casimir said. I could see he pushed his lower lip up so it wouldn't quiver. I always liked him, said Joe Hedges, the oiler. And there was a man who didn't only go to bankers for advice, no, sir. He talked to scientists and professors and labor men, too. Men who studied every side of a question, including farmers. Beneath the hard lights, head shook, hands spoke with wrenches. The shrill sing-sing of the grinders. The scrape of a lathe taking a heavy cut. Casimir spread a picture page of an afternoon paper on my toolbox, a huge photo of a naked man as thin as rope bent stiffly over a foul trough, a Nazi prison camp scene. Casimir studied it with his serious Polish eyes while I cranked work into the cutter. You know, Casimir repeated while staring at the picture, such things as that make a man ashamed to live in the same world. I reflected that men who earned more for others by working than they did for themselves were sensitive to injustice everywhere. I said, there are lots of people who think that picture's fine. FDR wasn't with that punch, Casimir said. The works blew a lunch siren which pierced everything we washed and filed into the chromium and fabricoid cafeteria. Herb of the turret lathe who lunched early pushed a coffee and pie among our dishes. He operated a food store and liked to scoff cynically at government controls. The ration boards are all crooks, but Mac had heard enough, old sockless Mac... What do we do here in this country? What do we know about real war? Mac roared. Oh, you know nothing," spoke Zicky, gesturing everything aside. Peasant stock, Zicky. He'd mine coal in Central Europe and Central Illinois. I tell you what war is. Short, hairy, square Zicky had saved up and bought the rooming house he lived in. I tell you, war is troop of Austrian cavalry coming back, horses tired. One horse he falls on hill. Officers say horses dead. Put him in field. No one can touch horse till government say so. Horse lays two, three days, swell up for stiff, then soft officer come back. Officers say government gives horse. All people I know come with knives. I was kid then. Cut up rotten horse, fight over it, take away every bit. Those people hungry. That's what war is. You know nothing. Old Mac smiled deeply. I remember the president came to Chicago once and rode down the street, and I guess it was when he came to speak at the new bridge and said we'd better fence off Hitler and them fellas. And I looked up at the roofs when the cars were driving by. It wasn't downtown. People on roofs to see him, and most of them acted glad, but I noticed on one roof a bunch of little children, I thought they were shaking their fists at him. I looked close, and that's what they was doing. Some little kids in private school, taught to act like that by their parents. What do you think of that? Anti-FDR Ollie of the Lathes said... Her newspaper sure tore up those last few weeks into him. Since he'd come back from the older confab, wonder if they knew he was barely making it. Wonder if he knew. The other Ollie of the Lathes, who was pro-FDR, rasped. You saw his face in the photo of the Big Three, didn't you? It was good for 20 years or, or 20 days. You couldn't tell... I don't think he could either. But your newspaper writers were maybe hoping. Stash, an aging pole at his lathe. Stash passed his sensitive hands along the imperceptible taper of a brooch he was turning. He looked both grim and tender as if he wanted to vote again. To vote right now. Best mill hand in the shop, Lindquist. I wonder if they'll let countries be free now. Rest period in the cafeteria, time for coffee. Virgie swallowed and banged down her cup. There was a guy, she voiced, breathing in deeply and huskily and on her abundant bosom. The big celluloid FDR campaign button rode up and down. Big stew with arms like bar stock and fingers that could feel a thousandth of an inch. Looked long at Virgie and nodded. Yeah, there's one guy I hated to see go. I really like losing my own father. Stu drove a taxi in 1932. You can keep wearing that button, Virgie, Stu said. Virgie said, Are you telling me? Jeff ran his hand truck beside my mill to pour in coolant late in the afternoon. I was brushing my hair when I heard it, Jeff said. I felt like something fell on me. couldn't see my face in the mirror. Jeff leaned his dark brown arm on the cutting table. Calling the papers while back, a Black Legion fellow staged a run-shoot on a colored man, said after why he did it, he wanted to see what a colored man would do when he died. You know, if you was raising a kennel of dogs to be good dogs, you wouldn't kick him every time you went in. Now, a human being, regardless of race or creed or color, human like you or me seems they'd know better than treat people that way. Just no reason for it. Jeff pushed off for another machine. I cranked the work into the cutter, listening to the new undertone totaling up among the vibrations like a funeral march. danceler propelling his truck of steel blanks and cutoff. Pushing a knot, he always bent stiffly forward, bent by work, by Silesian coal mines, by ships, by wheat fields, by lumber camps, by coal hiking, and now by steel. Dance, what about the piece now, when it comes? I think this... I worked for a farmer once. He owned two horses. Farmer next to him owned four horses. Two-horse farmer always plowed two inches over four-horse farmer's line. Every spring, every fall. At last, it's three feet over line. Four-horse farmer take two-horse farmer to court. Two-horse farmer beat up government surveyor. hire own surveyor. Never settled. Probably still fighting. No more stealing two inches if farmers cooperate. Hmm. No more war if nations cooperate. Dance took off at his angle, bound for the lathes. The morning papers arrived at 1.30 a.m. Roosevelt is dead. An hour to go. Tighten your pieces in the arbor with one pull on the wrench. Look well at the milky cooling water splashing off your cut, flowing down the T-slots of the moving table, draining through the outlet. Consider that other cutting table. The one you read about in the papers not long after D-Day. The special one near Paris in France at a Nazi extermination camp. That table, too, had lengthwise slots and gutters to drain off liquid that splashed and flowed. Instead of steel, it cut people. Instead of milky cooling water, it ran with hot blood. Like your machine, it did not splash the operator. Like your machine, it was scientific, wasteless, exact, faster pace, quicker beat. Still the machine throbs like four notes, but three short and one long. Like D-Day's V for Victory salute, like the Fifth Symphony. You slam the work into the cutter faster, and the beat changes. It slips into the fifth, gloriously races like the armies at the Elbe and the Oder. April 12th is already yesterday, but racing ahead of death, past Rome, past Paris, past Warsaw, past Budapest to Torgau, to Berlin. The machine thrusts and throbs, labors, shakes, cuts steel. The siren is blowing the end of the shift. Shut off the machine. I wrote my routine note in the back of a time card. Butch, put in a new cutter. Have this one sharpened. Otherwise, all okay. Stuck it in the work on the machine. As one cannot record the unsearchable riches of the people on the back of front of a time card, this has been an addition, a message from my friends about their president that has been left implicit since April a year ago in milling machines and lathes and grinders and planers and sharpers and drill presses and the men and women who run them and who remember not only that they lost FDR in 1945, but that he, he set forth the Economic Bill of Rights on a cold late October night in 1944 in Chicago when he came to see them and ask them for their help. Sincerely yours, Francis Martin. Oh, dear Mr. Martin. Since he died, Congress has not budged one inch on any important Roosevelt legislation. Mr. Martin, we can do something about that next year. There are tears for him. Tears and what else... Honours and tokens, hospitals and streets and statues, anything better, more abiding? There's his way of thought, the Roosevelt way, his program. In truth, we cannot honor him except in its service. There are no Roosevelt hospitals as long as a single man dies for lack of a hospital bed. There are no Roosevelt avenues or boulevards as long as any human walking any street is hungry. There are no Roosevelt parks until all the children of men have a place to play. There are no Roosevelt memorials if anywhere there is Jim Crow as long as there are bars against race. We can't afford a single granite plate to do him reverence. The poll tax is too costly. We must speak of him, but let's be careful we aren't merely crossing ourselves as we rob the grave. In the city park today, I saw the green breath of spring misting in the trees. The exclamatory white of blossoms. And blooming in the windows of the public schools, paper tulips cut out and craned by children born since the first Roosevelt Inauguration. What will they tell their children about him? That he was neither prophet nor Caesar, I guess. That he was not so much a crusader as the champion of a crusade. That he was not Tom Paine or John Brown, that he was the kind of great man who gets into American history by way of the ballot box. But he was a president. More than anything, he was that. If our children's children read that about him, they'll read the truth. Always and always, he was sensible of the pulse and push of this turning globe he helped to govern. It was his special gift that at every instant of his working life, he felt in every fiber of his withering body the huge throb of the engines of the world. He had the large view of large things. That's the truth of it. He was a president. A president who stood up in the midst of bankruptcy and spoke for plenty, stood fast in the storms of war and spoke for peace. He was our faith in ourselves, which cannot die with any man. The children of the children celebrating spring today. Will there be parks for their aprils? Paper flowers in school windows for them? Will there be schools? Will there be windows? It isn't up to Franklin Roosevelt. It never was. It's always up to us. Now, thank you, Mr. Martin, for your letter. My answer was insufficient, but it was heartfelt. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Please let me come to call again this same time, same station. Till then, I remain as always... Obediently yours. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company.